but they are who we thought they were. And we let them off the hook. I got baptized at uh, Lake Minnetonka. Uh, I hit a couple backflips. Playoffs? Don't talk about playoffs. You kidding me? Playoffs? I just hope we can win a game. My swag was having no swag. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another installment here of the Minnesota Sports Podcast for the 26th of October. How's it going? I'm CJ Baumgartner, diving in of all the latest here in Minnesota sports. And, uh, you know, we got some Minnesota Vikings to talk about. We got some Gophers. The Wolves, of course, showed us that they are the Minnesota Timberwolves and should not be deserved to be given credibility when it comes to being a good basketball team. And uh, we'll talk about that more coming up later. But first, why don't we start off with the Minnesota Gophers. We didn't talk about them yesterday, but boy, did they have a big win on Saturday. And honestly, I think that it probably is their, uh, I think that it's Minnesota's best game of the season. I, I don't think that they're, outside of maybe the Colorado win, I don't think that there was maybe the Colorado one, maybe you give it to them more because it's a non-conference win and all that kind of stuff. It's on the road. They shut them out. But, I mean, Maryland at home halfway through the season, Maryland coming off a bye, and you play well. And the Gophers have proven that uh, they are a good enough team to at least be considered in that top echelon of Big Ten West teams. Does that mean that they're better than Iowa? Not at this moment, but it does show that they are on pace and they're beating the teams that they're supposed to beat and they're beating them with ease. And that was something where, you know, and they did it against Nebraska too. I know the score looked closer than what it actually was, but Minnesota pounded Nebraska. Minnesota also had a strong outing against Purdue, especially on the defensive side of the ball, which the defense has been strong all year, by the way. And just, I think that it's one of those things where Minnesota is slowly building momentum, and it's kind of how the uh, outside of the loss to Bowling Green, this was exactly how the how the 2019 season played, where yeah, you had some clunkers here and there, but throughout the most part, your team was able. I think they won. I don't. I don't think they had a loss in the early part of the season like they did against Ohio State, but you still just kept picking up win after win and that feather in your cap and more and more and it adds up at the end of the year and if the Gophers don't compete in a uh, Big Ten championship game at the very least they could set themselves up really if they get one quality win to be able to compete in a New Year's Six Bowl. I think that they have the potential to do that maybe the Outback Bowl if they keep playing the way that they have been. And let's just talk a little bit about the Gophers. And the the old mantra, the uh, the mantra, pair and a spare, was t- coined with Glenn Mason uh, that, you know, in the Big Ten, you need two running backs and you need a third one. Well, the Gophers are on, like, running backs number four and five, and they're still doing pretty darn well. Uh, obviously, Muhammad Ibrahim, he's out for the season. Trey Potts was his replacement. He, after the Purdue game, was hospitalized, and he needed to – be uh, have his season uh, put on the sideline. So now what? They're on for running backs. They have Kai Thomas and Marquise, but everybody calls him Bucko Irving. Famously, the story PJ Fleck uh, recruited him. His mom nicknamed him Bucky. PJ Fleck said, "Well, we can't call you Bucky," and uh, you know now he's Bucko. But he ran for a Bucko five. But um, anyway, uh, he ran for a Bucko five and. A touchdown. Also, Kai Thomas had 139 yards and a touchdown. I mean, you look at the Minnesota running backs, how much of a field day that they had against the Maryland defense. Kai Thomas was averaging six and a half yards a carry 
Irving averaging seven yards a carry. Bryce Williams, the who would sit as about running back number five on the depth chart, he was he had 48 rushing yards and averaged 3.7 yards a carry. I mean, this this whole this team has been playing really well. Now Tanner Morgan only threw the ball 12 times, which still. Now I understand your team was up big early, so there really wasn't a a huge necessity, especially in the second half, to start passing. But at the same time, PJ, you can't expect to win all these games like this. Maryland's a bad team. You do a good job of beating them. But Tanner Morgan has to still be involved more. I think that that's just my one critique on this game because on offense, because really the defense has been playing masterful. We'll get to them in a second. But pair and a spare has been the has been the thing. PJ Fleck has been able to get a lot of good running backs here, but let's let's not give the entire praise to the running backs. Let's give it to the offensive line. How well has that gopher offensive this has to be the best golden gopher offensive line I have seen in my lifetime. And I know that's not a long period, but it's also a long enough period and not a lot of good gopher football for these guys to easily be considered one of the best gopher offensive lines in recent memory, and perhaps since they wore leather hats. I mean, how many, the Gophers have multiple potential NFL linemen, now not starting, maybe not like high-end draft picks, but at least people who will crack an NFL roster, they have that on their offensive line, because they are big dudes, and they know how to move people. I mean, Fa Lele is the, the big one, but they have a couple other guys as well. Connor Olson, I believe, is one of the other offensive linemen who's been having a good season. The Gophers' offensive line, it just goes to show you, the Gophers have a good offensive line, and how much that can make up for gaps in your offense. Cough, cough, Minnesota Vikings. Notice how when you have a good offensive line, things just kind of get better on your offense. It kind of masks the flaws a little bit because you give your quarterback a couple extra seconds. You give your freshman running back a chance to run through a giant hole and get confidence in his first handful of collegiate games in the meat of your Big Ten schedule. I mean... And the offensive line for the Gophers has just been amazing this year, and it's been the Gophers' biggest strength, and it's the reason why. I mean, these running backs are good. Don't get me wrong. They'll be good. But the Minnesota offensive line is a big reason why the Gophers are, what are they now, 5-2 and two on the season. They're a win away from getting into a bowl game. They have a very beatable team in Northwestern on Saturday, and that one is going to be an easy – I mean, now it's on the road. It's in Evanston, Illinois. It's got all that kind of stuff. But this is a this Gopher team with the way they've been playing right now, two impressive home wins. They should go on the road and beat a tough, well-coached Northwestern team. And then you have Illinois, who just came off the Penn State win, so you can't take them lightly. But they're still Illinois, and you still should be able to win that next game as well. So you should get two more wins. You get to seven and one, and two on the season, and then you have Iowa, Indiana, you know, Wisconsin. So there's a good chance that the Gophers probably finish the season about 8-4. and four. I think that's probably fair. I'm not going to give them the benefit of the doubt of saying that they can beat either Iowa on the road or Wisconsin at home to end the season. I'll give them the Indiana win on the road. So we'll say that the Gophers go about 8-4 and four to end the season. I think that's still good considering everything, but I, I think that this Gopher team has the potential to do more, but it all depends on if PJ can do the thing that he's only been able to do once, which is beat Wisconsin, and another thing, can you beat Iowa? Can you 
I mean, P.J. Fleck has never beaten Iowa yet. The Gophers haven't beaten Iowa since 2013, 20, 2014, when they absolutely curb-stomped them. And ever since then, Iowa's been able to hold on to the Floyd of Rosedale. And other than one year, Wisconsin just completely held on to Paul Bunny and Zachs. So that's what I, I think the Gophers have to pay attention to. I, I mean, they, you can't let Northwestern, Illinois, Indiana. You can't take any of these teams lightly. But your season will be defined by how you play against Iowa and Wisconsin. If you want to make – I know there's a few people in the gopher sphere who get upset when you say, well, you know, this team would be thought of more if they beat Bowling Green. And they're like, well, don't stress on a loss from a month ago. It's like, no, that loss was pretty significant because the gophers got one vote to be in the top 25. The gophers are an easy 25 to 19, kind of in that 25 to 17 range of teams if they go six and one in their one losses to Ohio State. The Gophers team is easily ranked then. But the problem is you took an opponent too lightly, it got the better of you, and this is what happened. And that's why you gotta that should be the focus against some of these teams is don't take Northwestern, Illinois, Indiana, all those guys lightly. Because you have the pieces. See what you can do with a very good offensive line. And by the way, do you see what you can do with a very good defensive line? This is what I've talked about with the Vikings. When you play badly on both your offensive and defensive lines, you will lose almost every single game. When you play well in one of those, it helps. But when you play well on the offensive and defensive lines, there's you will win the game. There's just outside of flukiness or turnovers or whatever, you will win the game because if you can a block everybody and be able to run the ball and also just give your quarterback time to throw and on the other side you prevent the quarterback from being able to throw and you clog up the running lanes I mean it just sets your team up in such a position to win and this gopher defensive line has also just been another uh feather in the cap for this team this season Joe Rossi has the defense he was on the hot seat a little bit at the beginning of the season and a little bit last season but Man, he's really showed out. He showed that he is the Gophers' defensive coordinator for this team. They're playing about as well as they play. I mean, this defense, you know, doesn't have the star power of Antoine Winfield Jr. and, uh, you know, those guys. But it does have some key pieces and some good pieces. Coney Durr is one of those guys who's been kind of getting uh, – a Mafe has been a, some of the other guys who have been stealing the spotlight. But you don't have that star power of Antoine Winfield, whose dad played in the NFL. But you do have a lot of good guys who will be in the NFL because of how well this defense is playing. And they're playing better. They're playing at about the same level, if not better, than that defense in 2019. So it's been it's been fun to watch how well the Gophers have played. And they're going to need it, uh, not necessarily in the next couple games, but these next uh, the last three games are going to be the toughest for the Gophers to finish out the season. But let's take a look now at, uh, at the Minnesota Vikings here, talking about them a little bit. And with the Vikings, we talked a lot about them yesterday, the stock ups, the stocks down, and, and just kind of our general thoughts heading into uh, this game against the Cowboys. And it kind of just got, and I mentioned it a little bit yesterday, and I just wanted to talk a little bit more about it, which is if you're the Vikings, your corners are just in so much trouble because of what, because of, Patrick Peterson going down because Patrick Peterson at least took the brunt of saying, I'm going to cover the team's best receiver. I'm going to have a mix of results, but you know what? He's not going to just gash our team. And I think that's respectable. I think that's where about Patrick Peterson was. He wasn't 
shutting anybody down. He wasn't going into, you know, 2013, 2015, 2017, you know, that kind of Patrick Peterson. He's definitely beyond that. But he is a guy who still is able to hold his own and just to prevent the the other wide the team's opposing wide receiver from just having a field day against you. And now, I mean, against the Cowboys, they have three wide receivers who can get a field day against you. The two that come to mind, obviously, are Amari Cooper and CeeDee Lamb, and, and there's a whole bunch of others on that Cowboys team. Their wide receiving options are loaded, and it's going to be interesting to see how the Vikings counter that because, yeah, they got Harrison Hand back, but did you even remember if Harrison Hand was on the Vikings? Did you think that maybe he was cut or maybe he just was never going to play? or He was out the last couple weeks with COVID, but... If you're the Vikings, how do you feel about this game? Because you don't have the corners to be able to run with Dallas. And your pass rush has been okay, but Dallas has a good enough offensive line where you can't bank on Everson Griffin and Daniil Hunter getting home all the time. And especially the way that Dallas can run the football, you can't just pin your ears back and try and sack Dak Prescott and try and take some time away from him. And Dak Prescott, who was injured earlier uh, last week after their overtime win, against New England, well, they had a bye week. Dak was able to rest up. He's fully healthy. He's expected to go, or at least isn't expected to be uh, limited at all. So it's, the Vikings are going to go up against a fully-fledged Cowboys offense that, by the way, is probably better than the Minnesota Vikings offense, at least on paper. And it's going to be in, it's going to be interesting to see how they match up with this because you don't have Patrick Peterson. And so that – and that's the thing. Patrick Peterson wasn't an all-pro corner – but he just gave you a veteran option. He gave you somebody who you could throw on. Let's say they put him on Amari Cooper because CeeDee Lamb might probably be faster than him just running down the field. Let's say they put him on Amari Cooper. Well, you know what? Amari Cooper isn't going to gas you for 100-plus yards. CeeDee Lamb might, but Amari Cooper might not. And then at least you can maybe put Cam Dantzler or Brashad Breland on CeeDee Lamb and have Xavier Woods or something over top of him and kind of try and do your best with that, at least prevent him from gashing you deep. But now, what do you do? You're you're very stuck in this situation. And so the easy thought is, well, the trade deadline hasn't passed yet. Why don't you go get a corner? And this is an article from Bleacher Report. It talked about some teams' additions that they could get. And this is from last week, but I'm going to talk about uh, I'm going to talk about it here. But basically, it says that uh, they should get out and get a corner, and they should get. Vernon Hargraves from the Texans, who of course are having a miserable season. They're selling off pieces. They need draft picks. So why not give them, why not give them some for Vernon Hargraves, the corner? He's a former first round pick. You know, he was with Tampa, but now he's with Houston. A guy who's kind of fallen off the wagon, but has some talent at least. And, uh, you know, so the Vikings can use an extra corner and with the Vikings, uh, They've been looking for some pieces, and this is what the article says about uh, about uh, the option of getting Vernon Hargraves. It says, Minnesota signed veteran Patrick Peterson as a free agent, but he's currently on IR with a bulky hamstring. Vernon Hargraves started both the Tampa Bay Buccaneers and Houston Texans, is only 26 and is a free agent after this season. The Vikings should call the Texans in the attempt to add one more corner. And yeah, it makes sense, and it's more of a long-term option to get Vernon Hargraves and he gets a younger guy in, you know, maybe you think about bringing him back. So you give the Texans like one of Spielman's vaunted worth its waiting gold seventh round picks to a try and maybe a fifth round pick or something like that. You already traded a fourth round pick for Chris Herndon, which has just been working fabulously for you. Uh, so I don't know. 
it, what the right price is for that. But I think that the I think even if you let's say the Vikings traded for Vernon Hargraves today, heck, let's say they even traded for him yesterday or on Sunday after the game. I still don't think it helps the Vikings because it takes corners so long, not just to get acclimated into a defense, but also just to really get a feel for how they're playing on the field. Unless you're, you know, unless you're uh, Marcus Peters or unless you're Jalen Ramsey, it is very hard midway through a season to go on to a new team and also to have plenty of success. So I think that's one thing that could, uh, I think that's one thing that's kind of sticks a knife in that or kind of, uh, you know, is a little bit against that theory of just go get a corner, because it's going to take some time for you to actually get them acclimated into your team. And as the Vikings learn throughout the first third of this NFL season, you can't just throw an amalgamation of defenders, no matter how talented they are, you can't just throw them together and expect them all to play really well, because a lot of things, the key to a good defense isn't just talent, it's also the communication. It's also how players play together. It's also just that teamwork aspect and all those intangible things that put together defense. Obviously, you got to be talented, but good defenses just know how to play with each other and how to communicate and all that kind of stuff. And I think that that would just take too long. Sure, it would be a help later in the season, but if you're trading for Vernon Hargraves to try and not only replace Patrick Peterson in the short term, but also help your team out, it's not going to be – you're not going to beat Dallas. He's not going to be ready in time to play Dallas, even if you got him yesterday, even if you got him over the weekend. It would be very tough not only to get him acclimated into your defense, but also to get him ready to say, all right, now here's CeeDee Lamb and Amari Cooper. You guys go figure it out. That's just not going to happen. And even later in the season, by about the time Vernon Hargraves gets used to everything, is when Patrick Peterson would come back, potentially. is in about a few weeks. It would probably take him about a month to really get into this offense, which is why the trade deadline is so early in the season, is because it takes players time to get acclimated to a new NFL team. But that's just the thing. Even if it's not Vernon Hargraves, uh, this is the example Bleacher Report used. I don't think it's a bad thing in a vacuum. 26 years old, if the Texans are willing just to take a very late-round draft pick, why not? You take a chance on him. If he works out, then maybe you sign him to, like, a minor extension. Or if you're the Vikings, maybe you just wait till next season. You want to sign him anyways. Whatever. Now, there's no there's no proof or there's no evidence that suggests that the Vikings are wanting a Vernon Hargraves especially. But even if you do get another player besides Vernon Hargraves, it, it still is just a very still is a very complex situation. And it's not just Madden, where you can trade for guys. It's not fantasy football, where you can just throw them in and they're just expected to continue their normal output, throwing them in a new environment. So that's one thing with the Vikings that's going to be interesting here. And, and there's an, an article that I promise you we will get to. We'll get to that uh, tomorrow, talking about... Uh, the Minnesota Vikings and how they are uh, and how they're not chokers. Uh, it's an interesting article that I really do want to talk about, and we'll talk about it tomorrow on the show. Uh, but we are going to move on here. And and again, with the Vikings, it's they they have a talented team. They have the potential to beat Dallas. I'm not saying that they're finished, that they're going to get wiped with the floor, but. I mean, if you don't have any corners that can play, Zimmer is going to have to craft the game plan of his life to try and hold on to the way Dallas's offense is moving. They're about as balanced as Cleveland, by the way, with better wide receivers and a better quarterback. So you're going to have to figure out how to do that. Uh, it's a night game, Sunday Night Football. Uh, you know, 
at home, so the fans are going to make up for that a little bit, but it's just it's going to be so tough if you can't get the corners to go in and play. All right, let's take a look now at the Minnesota Timberwolves, and boy, did they throw in a clunker last night. Back to uh, the old Wolves. All right, I, I tweeted this last night. I was like, the Wolves laying an egg in a very winnable game at home, and it's that gif of Eminem from uh, from 8 Mile going back to reality. Oh, there goes gravity, and yeah, the floor fell under the Wolves, and they figured out there goes gravity because they just laid absolute egg against the uh, against the New Orleans Pelicans. I don't even think I don't have the score in front of me here, but I don't even think that the that the uh, that the Timberwolves, excuse me, got to no, they got to 98 points. They lost a 98-107, I think is yep, 98-107 is the way the Timberwolves lost, and it they just played terrible. And not only did they play terrible, it all fell on their top three guys, Cat D'Lo and Cat D, uh, D'Lo and Anthony Edwards. I, and, and the worst of it all is, I think this shows a lot of the flaws in the Timberwolves. They got out-rebounded last night, something intense, by the Pelicans, without Zion, by the way. Uh, they got just obliterated on the boards, which is something that we talked about uh, last week, which is saying that the Wolves, I mean, they're, they're t there's plenty of talent, but there's flaws in this roster, including just their height, their size, more over their size. Uh, they, they just don't have the ability to go up and get rebounds like other teams do in those second-chance points. They go and make you pay. Another thing has been, if those big three guys are off, this team is off, man. Uh, I know Carl Anthony Towns ended up putting up 32 points, which is fine. Anthony Edwards had an abysmal first half. He turned it around. He got 28, I think, or something along those lines. So he didn't have a terrible game. D'Angelo Russell, so far, has put together three very suspect games so far this season. And I've never been a big D-Lo guy. So, you, you know, people who have listened to this podcast and previous radio shows I've did over the years know that I'm not the biggest D'Angelo Russell guy. But at the same time, he does have the talent to be able to contribute. And this is where I think just the way that the Timberwolves are structured is that they're going to run into trouble. It's, it's just back to reality for these Wolves that Carl Anthony Towns is still having the same issues. He still is a great player. Carl Anthony Towns is a great player. The best player the Timberwolves have had since Kevin Garnett. It's not it's not easy. Cat is the best player that they've had. But there are Cat has to fix a couple things. He has to at least just get better. Cat, yesterday it was a physical game. You you are playing a team in New Orleans, uh Zavalinus or, or Zavalucius or whatever his last name was, was just absolutely obliterating you down on the block yesterday. What were you doing? Sitting to the refs, whining about every foul. There's a picture of Carl Anthony of the of Carl Anthony Towns in the background and a ref in the foreground, and Carl Anthony Towns has his arms down. Looks like he's complaining about something. I understand that Cat doesn't get the calls that other NBA players do. I really do. I think that that is a problem. But you know what is not going to help? is for the third season in a row, just straight up whining that you don't get calls like your LeBron, like your Anthony Davis, like your, just any, like your Embiid, like your Jimmy Butler, like your any of these players. Now I understand, Carl Anthony Towns deserves more calls. He sometimes gets battered down in the post. I'm not trying to say that Cat's complaints aren't unwarranted. I'm not saying he's just making this up or he's 
being a baby. I'm not saying that. I think the cat has a case. The only issue is, is that it doesn't help when you get bullied down in the post and then you go to the refs and complain. That isn't, I mean, it's, I, Cat is a great player in this league, and I know the NBA thinks that he is, but he's not on the level where refs are really going to give him calls, especially if he starts complaining to them. Now, the refs were bad last night, I will say. They, they were not particularly great against that game, against the Wolves yesterday. But I'm not going to blame a game on the refs. Cat, I don't care. It's kind of that Kirk Cousins thing with the Vikings. I don't care that things aren't going your way. You need to try and figure it out instead of worrying about the things that aren't going your way. And and Anthony Edwards, too. Also, uh, we talked about D'Lo having a bad game. We talked about Cat having a bad game. This just turns into a rant because it's the Minnesota Timberwolves, and that's just – it's really easy to dig on them. But but Carl Anthony Towns having a bad game, D'Angelo Russell having a bad game, and they couldn't hit a lick, by the way, from three-point. It was just abysmal. I want to find their, uh, their three-point percentage from last night because it was very not good yesterday. The Minnesota Timberwolves, if I can find their uh, percentage from three yesterday. Uh, yeah, the Timberwolves for three-pointers, they were 15 of 50 from three yesterday. They shot 53 pointers and yeah, it didn't work out for them. They also shot uh, 34.5% from the field. That's uh that's not good. Uh, and just when you look at rebounds, they got out-rebounded 41 to 60. And just I, I with with the Timberwolves, they mainly got out-rebounded, by the way, on the defensive side as well. That's where a majority of that came from. And Anthony Edwards, yeah, he finished the game with a good half. But in the first half, his shooting wasn't on. And he really had to try and attack the rim in the second half to get better. But here's where, I, and, and, and this is one more thing I'm going to dig on the Wolves for here is just with everything about this team, you it just proves you cannot give them the benefit of the doubt until they earn it. I don't know how many times I'm going to tell the Timberwolves, don't expect them to be good. Don't expect them to be a a solidified playoff contender. They can be on the fringes, but don't expect them to be a solidified playoff contender until they actually do it. I, They are just... I, I think Finch is a good head coach, by the way. I think Towns, I think Ant are very talented and should be the faces of this team. But I just... You, you can't trust them to actually do it until they prove it to you. They've been the Cleveland Browns of the NFL, the New York Jets, whatever you want to say. Everything they touch has just ruined, and they need to figure out what they can do to fix it because there's just I, no amount of just, oh, well, this team is just better. Saying that, you're going to have to actually see them do it because up until this point, they have shown nothing to prove to me and to the rest of the Wolves fan base that they are worthy of us saying this is a lock for a playoff spot. They're not. They're going to be competing for one, but don't expect them to be playing in that play-in tournament until you can actually until you can actually see it, until we actually get to February and actually see this team in a realistic spot. I'm sorry, I'm just not going to assume that they're going to make the playoffs. But one last thing I will say with the Minnesota Timberwolves that gives me hope is Anthony Edwards. He had a bad game, but you know what? He had a a post-game presser that really uh, kind of made it stand out, that really uh, really helped, I should say, uh, because Anthony Edwards, 
really, I think, is the saving grace of this team. I think if the Timberwolves are going to turn it around, I think it is going to be because of Anthony Edwards. I, I, I really do, because he is a he's a great player. He is a guy that not just a great player. Now I know he didn't play great, but he is a guy that can turn around and can play and can play better. He's got the moxie, I should say. He's got just that sense of somebody that can take over a locker room with his persona in a way that Carl Anthony Towns, and that's not a detriment on him, never has. And that's why I think Anthony Edwards can do it because after the game, he was talking about this team needing to be better. And I, I think when you look at the uh, when you look at the Timberwolves, he just talked about them needing to play better. I'm trying to find their uh, their exact quote here, but uh, trying to pull it up, I think on on Twitter because you're not going to see it in in the Star Tribune and stuff like that based on uh, based on this team. But you have guys like D'Angelo Russell saying, "I just forgot how to play basketball. No excuse" or something like that. Or, you know, Anthony Edwards, here is his after the game. Wake up call for sure. Lock in. Lock the bleep in. Everybody coming in here thinking it's sweet playing the Pelicans whooped our bleep. Now our back's on the wall again. We got to wake up. And you know what? It, it, it's true. And last, uh, Jace Frederick of the Pioneer Press said, last year Ricky Rubio was the Timberwolves' post-game truth teller. On Monday, it was Anthony Edwards embracing that kind of leadership role. And you know what? Carl Anthony Towns is never going to do that. Anthony Edwards, he'll do that. And you know what? That's good. This team needs a guy, not in a Jimmy Butler sense where he's going to go fight you after the game, but he needs to be the guy. And Patrick Beverly can be this too from a veteran standpoint to say, games like this, unacceptable. We do not take that because a lot of Timberwolves teams would just have shrugged off and said, oh, poor us. No, no poor Timberwolves. No poor you guys. Figure it out. Like Anthony Edwards said, lock it in. Lock the bleep in because this is a team that is talented enough to make the playoffs. And if they don't try and lock it in, they're not going to have a chance. All right, let's finish up the podcast here by talking a little bit about the Minnesota Twins. And the last thing that I wanted to finish on was talking a little bit about Rocco Baldelli. Uh, Rocco has had a fair and unfair amount of criticism over the last season. Uh, I think it's fair that, uh, you know, when the team was down early in the season, they went through that patch and Rocco's just like, well, we just got to keep playing. We can't get too up or down. It's like, dude, your team is sinking their season in late April. You guys are supposed to win the Central. Like, I mean, not, they weren't according to Vegas and all that, but according to a lot of Twins fans and the expectation from inside your own building was you should be winning this division. Your team is sinking and you haven't even played 50 games yet. What are you going to do? And it's just that mellow, laid back. And I understand it also works, but there has to be a little bit of that kick in the butt mentality. And the me the mellow thing is great when you're winning. It was great in 2019 when they, you know, when they were a winning team, they were 20 games above 500. They had a bit of a slow stretch uh, in about mid-August. And Baldelli and Odorizzi and Cruz and all those guys were like, you know, don't worry, we'll figure it out. And they did figure it out. But when your team is sinking like that in April, it's not always the best. And I don't necessarily 100% blame them. But at the same time, like, dude, you got to try and, do something here. You can't just say, well, we'll figure it out. You have to look at your team and go, oh no, like Alex Colomay can't pitch. Like we can't use him in any high leverage situation. But like, oh no, like we, 
we, you know, let some of these guys go that we totally shouldn't have let go in Lamont Wade and in Odorizzi and in Matt Whistler. You know, you have to look at some of that and go, we are not the same team we were the last couple seasons. So, you know, oh no, in, in April, Miguel Sano couldn't hit the ball at all. Uh, things like that, where you have to try and figure out how to adjust course and not necessarily change. I'm not saying Rocco has to be flipping tables, but a guy who at least has to demand a little bit more urgency from his players. That I think is the fair criticism. What I think is the unfair criticism is that, and I will say, by the way, to the fair criticism, uh, is that, you know, he needs to provide that spark. And it's harder to see it behind the scenes, kind of like that Joe Maurer, where like people said behind the scenes he tried to do his part, but he's just is who he is. And maybe, but you know, I I still think that uh, I still think that's been uninspired from the early part of the season. Rocco's got to figure that out. But I think the unfair criticism has been his pitching moves in certain situations. I know the Twins, uh, Twins fans ripped him for his bullpen moves and for all that kind of stuff and the way that he put together lineups. But at the same time, some of these bullpen moves, I mean, Rocco Baldelli didn't have the 2019-2020 Twins bullpens here. He had the 2021 Twins bullpen, which ranked, I believe, 20th in ERA or something like that at the end of the season. It was not good. So he had to kind of make do with what he had. And yeah, he had Alexander Colomain, Hansel Robles, and Jorge Alcala, who hadn't quite figured it out yet. You know, he had some regression years from guys like Tyler Duffy and just all these other things where it's like, look, Rocco Baldelli is trying to use the best pitchers he has, but at the same time, he just doesn't have good pitching. And I don't necessarily fault that on Rocco Baldelli. Now, maybe he had some input during the offseason, but you blame it more on the Twins' brain trust of Derek Falvey and Thad Levine just not giving him any good pitching to use. I mean, he didn't have – they gave him – they replaced uh, Trevor May, uh, Matt Whistler – and Sergio Romo with Hansel Robles, uh, Alexander Colome, and what, Luke Farrell, uh, Glenn Sparkman, just a bunch of other guys who are not going to work out. So the Twins failed Baldelli in that sense. I'm not going to put that on him. Do I, I mean, he could have been better, obviously, but at the same time, I, I just think that he had an unfair hand and he was trying to do the best in that situation. I'm not going to fault Baldelli for the bullpen moves. But I think in terms of Baldelli, he's still a young, he's still a smart manager. He seems to get it. He seems to be well-liked by his players. They like that, you know, he's a former player. He understands the grind. He understands all these things. He's very laid back. He's not going to get fired anytime soon. He still has that clubhouse, by the way. And the Twins aren't going to fire him anytime soon. Let's look at how the Twins, and this is going to come up all the way from ownership, but I'm sure if Falvey and Levine wanted to fire Baldelli, they probably could get the okay from ownership. But at the same time, if you're Falvey and Levine, why are you going to fire the manager that you just hired a couple seasons ago? This is baseball. And the Twins weren't the Slam Diego Padres. We made a bunch of big moves in the offseason to do all this kind of stuff. If anything, if the Twins were looking to blame anybody for last season, it should be on Derek Falvey and Thad Levine more than it should be for Rocco Baldelli. And the Twins aren't going to use Jace Tingler as a scapegoat like uh, A.J. Preller is going to use uh, in San Diego for some of the moves that they had. But I, even in the ownership, you look at ownership in the late 90s. Now, Tom Kelly won two World Series rings, so that was going for him. But those twin teams after 1991 were bad. 
I mean, they were so bad in the mid to late 90s that the poll ads weren't even just looking to move the team. They were just looking to rid themselves of the team, to just contract the team into non-existence. They were so bad, and the team was just so bad in every which way. And Tom Kelly took the brunt of that, but they never thought of firing him, by the way. Guardy in the 2010s, he had the credibility of going on uh, all those central titles and the playoff run in 2002, going to the ALCS. And there was never a doubt to fire him. You know, there were calls for it, but in 2014, it was just more because it was just time to make that change. But it wasn't necessarily because that they thought he was a bad manager. But even then, it still just took a long time. He managed the Twins for, what, about 13 to 14 years? It was a decade plus. And then you look at Molitor. After 2016, there were a lot of people that thought he should have been fired. Falvey and Levine, if they probably had it their way, they probably would have just fired Molitor too and started fresh. But the ownership wanted to keep him. And whether that's because he was one of the old guys and and they didn't want to and they felt like Molitor was going to get a raw deal, even though Molitor coached for two more seasons and still got a raw deal in getting fired a year after winning Manager of the Year. But I still think that when you look at that, the Twins aren't – if you just look at the Twins' pattern of keeping managers, they are not going to fire their manager anytime soon. And it's not like football. You don't just fire the head coach after about two to three seasons when you don't get the result you want. Baseball's a lot slower process about that, for better or worse. There were issues last season, but the biggest issue with the Twins, as we said before, wasn't with Rocco Baldelli, but the weak pitching staff with injuries, with regression, things that really, for the most part, are out of the manager's control. Maybe you can say – some of the ways that the lineup was put together. Maybe you could say certain pitching situations. But at the same time, Baldelli was just given given a crappy hand. I, I'm not going to blame a lot of the season on Baldelli. I think, there's some, I think there's blame. I just don't think that it's large enough for him to amount a firing. Because also, who do you replace him with? Who do you who do you bring in? I don't know. I think that's the thing. about And it's the thing about Mike Zimmer, too. Now, Mike Zimmer, the case is better for making a change. But with Rocco Baldelli... Who, who do you baseball fans say you should bring in? And it's just, well, I don't know, better than better than the one we got now. Is it, though? I, I really don't see it that way. I, you know, I'm not the biggest Baldelli guy, but I think Baldelli's a good, smart manager, and I think he's the guy that if the Twins want to win, they seem like they think Baldelli is the guy. And until proven otherwise, I think you just have to roll with it because, honestly, there's not really a running list of teams ready to break down the door to become the manager of the Minnesota Twins. So I think Rocco Baldelli's the manager of the Twins for a while, and that's just kind of how it is. All right, well, that wraps it up here on the podcast for today. We have a What About Them Wednesdays coming up tomorrow. Be sure to tune in. You're listening to the Minnesota Sports Podcast. Thanks for listening to the Minnesota Sports Podcast. You can find us on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Be sure to leave a five-star review and share the podcast on social media to help spread the word.